Well, hello there, lucky listener. I am Fiona, aka Dr. Radness. And I am Peter, also known as Dr. Greenfield. And And together, together we are are the Partial Historians. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. We've got a special edition, a nice little short pocket-sized edition for you today. Slip it into your pocket, take it away for later. That's right. Normally, we are tracing the history of Rome from the founding of the city. Yes, but we're taking a special stop in this episode to consider... Uh, in a little more detail, uh, the life and times of one of uh, the fabulous female figures from mm. Roman history, no other than Livia Drusilla. Could there be any more fabulous person in the history of Rome, as far as females are concerned? I mean, your question is probably yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I figure that since you must, you're a massive fan of Augustus, Dr. G, that uh, you must also be a fan of Livia. Look, I'm not going to deny Augustus is my homeboy crush of the ancient past, <laughs> and Livia is my most severe rival. Ah, true. I didn't think of that. The rivalry. Oh, the rivalry. <laughs> So we're going to couple, cover a few things mm. today. We're going to start with the present, thinking mm. about Livia in the popular imagination. Yes. Because she has quite a reputation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then we're going to like dial it back and start to delve into how did this popular understanding of Livia come about? And we'll get further and further towards the ancient source material as we go. Yes, absolutely. So um, we have talked about ancient Rome in the popular imagination, and I'm talking more about like TV and film and that sort of thing at this point in time before. But um, generally when we talk about that, there are a few periods that tend to be focused on. And to be honest, although it is Julio-Claudian in nature, um, it does tend to be on particular emperors like Caligula and Nero, because let's face it, they're crazy. (laughs) They are the naughty ones. Yes. Yes. And so people can, I suppose, have a bit more fun with them. So Quo Vadis, for example, most notoriously, Nero, um, etc., etc. Which means that we don't often get a lot of screen time with Livia, because she was the empress, um, and therefore the wife, in case you don't put two and two together, of the first emperor, I'm using flesh rabbits, or perhaps more accurately, the first princeps of Rome, Augustus, sometimes known as Octavian. (laughs) (laughs) We'll refer to him as both, depending on how we need to in this episode. So Livia comes to us in the popular imagination most profoundly Mm. in the BBC television series from the 70s, I, Claudius. Yeah, this is still a fan favourite. So yeah, this is really the main... Thing that people might know Livia from because she was a pretty dominating presence in that TV series and to be honest I am a history teacher in case you haven't guessed dear listeners and I still use this in my classroom because it so sums up some of the ancient source material about her and her family um, it still really stands the test of time even though it's a bit stagey It is a very impressive series, Uh, but Livia does not cop a good rap. I think it is pretty fair to say from the I, Claudius production. Well, that's just it. The thing that I think makes Livia in this particular series so notable is how she's she's imperious, but evil. (laughs) 
<laughs> Sorry, I just had to turn you off. Fair enough. Yeah. I, think I think it's totally warranted. Yeah. So, Livia in I, Claudius is portrayed by the actress Sean Phillips. Yes. And this is still considered to be her standout role for many people because it's the only one they remember. <laughs> she's um, 84 now. Well, she's done a lot of other yeah. work. Uh, but I came across this article from the Daily Mail, which was mm. sort of recapping on Phillips's career. Yes. Livia is described as the wicked witch of Rome. Yeah, I think I think that's definitely sums her up. I mean, I Claudius, for those of you who haven't seen it, I mean, how could you not be up up to scratch with your 1970s BBC productions? Where have you been? At? I know. What are you doing on the weekends? Um, but yeah, basically, I Claudius is an adaptation of a pretty famous novel um, set in ancient Rome, written by Robert Graves, and it is the reason why it's called I Claudius is because it is meant to be both a novel and a TV series told from the point of view of Claudius. Yeah, so Claudius, the Emperor Claudius, ends up being the main narrator yes. of the story. So this is his retelling of the history of his own life yes. and his own rule. And Livia figures very largely in this because she is such uh, a spectral of an evil figure as far as Claudius's interpretation is concerned. Yeah, and I think we can see why, because the ancient source material, I don't think that Livia and Claudius had a particularly close relationship, even though she was his grandma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I'm not sure she's the sort of person you could get really close to, and certainly not according to this adaptation. She's described as having a viperish glee. She hisses and swishes through the imperial palace, and she leaves corpses in her wake. Yeah. And not only that, uh, she's accused in I, Claudius, of having poisoned Augustus himself, her very own husband. Yeah. Uh, before Which it, he it could... is in the ancient sources, to be fair, but yeah. <laughs> Look, I'm going to argue otherwise. Yeah, no, no, I mean, I'm, just saying, I'm just saying, it doesn't come out of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, she is. She, she is completely evil and completely dominating in this series. But, but you know what, she's also a figure of respect. Some of the other female figures in this series are, it's all about the sex, you know, mm. and they're, they're, like some of them are a bit of a mixture, like sex and politics, but Livia, I think you really get the idea that she's all about the politics, even if that does occasionally ever seem involve like getting married to Augustus or something. She's, she's far more political, I think, than any other female figure in the series. Yes, and her ruthless ambition, it would appear, is, is the main critical feature here. Yeah. Uh, she's accused of basically knocking off all of the possible heirs to Augustus who have some sort of blood relationship to Augustus. Yeah, and that, again, comes through from the ancient material as well. It's not completely invented. I mean, Robert Graves, the guy who wrote the novel that this is based on, he was actually a classicist. Oh, yes. Yeah. So I think this is a good time to, like, turn to our, our second focal wait, point I have so for this episode. I have no, take the TV away no, from me. wait for it. Wait for it. Because our, sec our, our second yeah. question is, where yeah. did Robert Graves get his material? Mm. Well, I think the, 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 the thing that interested me the most is that Robert Graves was a classicist of note, he, and, but he did also write a lot of novels during his lifetime. Um, he actually wrote 120 novels. And he what? Wrote, yeah, he wrote... I, Claudius has actually become one of his better-known ones nowadays, obviously. It's a bit like Alec Guinness being remembered for playing Obi-Wan in Star Wars, though, because I don't think he, that was the plan. <laughs> I think it... From what I can gather, he actually wrote I, Claudius because he was basically a bit cash poor and he just dashed it off very quickly, not really expecting it to be, you know, this smash success sort of thing. He just needed the money. Oh, I think it's yeah. even better than that. I yeah. came across a really interesting story when I was researching this aspect. Apparently yeah. Graves 
uh, was visited by Claudius in a dream. Oh. And, and Claudius <laughs> demanded that his real story be told. So I, Claudius, and the uh, sequel, Claudius the God, mm. which comes out a year later, yeah. uh, are considered to be uh, the voice of Claudius as determined by this dream, um, graves are blind. I'm a little bit cynical. I'm a little bit cynical. I don't. Well, I don't. I wouldn't <laughs> recommend cynicism. I think that's fascinating. Uh, this element of Claudius speaking from the grave. Well, I know that Graves was attracted to Claudius as the figure. Um, as listeners who've listened to our past episodes about Claudius might um, might expect, Claudius was always kind of an overlooked figure in the imperial family in real life. And I think Graves probably did feel a bit of an affinity for him um, as a historian. I mean, we know that Claudius wrote historical works and yet none survived, not a single word. And so to take Claudius and make him your narrator, it makes sense given what we know about the imperial family and who would have had the time to lull about the palace writing all these things down? <laughs> Quite simply, only one person, Claudius. <laughs> Well, and there's a good reason why he has the time to be a historian yes. and to also to try and produce his own autobiography in eight books, also now lost. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's because when he was born, he seems to have had some not easily identifiable medical ailments. Yeah. And we're not really sure. We know he walked with a limp. He's considered... Seems he had a stammer or some sort of yeah, speech impediment. Yeah, some sort of speech impediment. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think today a lot of people would assume that that would be some sort of slight form of cerebral palsy sure yeah uh, but we don't really know no the- and, and our sources also seem to indicate that perhaps he particularly as he became an adult obviously that he perhaps exaggerated it so that he would be so that he would actually seem more the fool and overlooked by his family and therefore not be assassinated <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so one of his tutors uh, mm. was the writer and uh, law um, advocate, Asinius Polo, mm. and he is credited with having suggested to Claudius that the best thing that he could do, given the family political situation, is to pretend to be dumber than he is. Yes, yes. And, and this we, we saw it with Brutus as well, didn't we? Yeah, and this yeah. is the sort of thing that would work quite well in the ancient Roman world, precisely because... From their perspective, physical characteristics determined internal characteristics. Yeah. So Claudius's manifestation of physical ailments and difficulty with speech are obviously a sign to everybody around him that there are issues inside. Yeah, it's basically bad luck if you were beaten with the ugly stick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not the sort of thing that would that would be acceptable no, in, God, in no. today's no, it's horrible. Age. It's horrible. Yeah. Um, but it bespoke in the Roman world a tainted character. Precisely, yeah. Now yeah. like look don't put him into any office. They didn't mm. give him any sort of low-level positions. Yeah. They're like, look, and so he ha- consequently has lots of free time. Yeah. He does a lot of writing, none of which survive. Crazy. And then <laughs> appears to Robert Graves in a dream. Yeah. He says, I need my truth to be told. I'm not a fool. Or Graves hears this. Cha-ching. <laughs> you decide, listeners. You decide. It's quite possible. <laughs> yeah. Robert Graves was coming off the back of just having translated the whole of Suetonius's Lives of the Twelve Caesars. Ah, there you go. So he had just well, done this, some juicy work. This is the criticism that um, I think was thrown at him a lot at the time when he released it, was that 
a lot of people were scoffing that he'd really just taken Suetonius and Tacitus, smooshed them together and come out with this version of things because they seem to be so heavily based on the ancient sources. So much so that when he released Claudius the God, um, I believe he had to write uh, a new preface where he actually talked about the other sources that he used apart from Tacitus and Suetonius. Guys, guys, there's original content in here. Uh, I, I used uh, this coin. This coin spoke to me. <laughs> Well, as far as the narratorship of I, Claudius goes, mm. Claudius argues that Augustus has this tragic loss of heirs over the course of his rule. Mm. So Mar- uh, Marcellus dies, mm-hmm. uh, the first wife Which of is true. Uh, yeah. Augustus's daughter, Julia. Yeah, the first uh, husband, you mean. The first husband, yeah. yes. Sorry. Yeah, that's right. Um, the second husband, Marcus mm. Agrippa, dies. Yeah, yeah. And... Gaius and Lucius Caesar, Julia's children, Julia's children by Marcus Agrippa mm. are also done away with. Mm-hmm. It would seem. <laughs> Claudius <laughs> argues specifically that these deaths are no mere tragedies, and this comes down to the fact, I suppose, that rather unusually, especially considering all the moral legislation that Augustus introduces regarding women and their fertility and all that kind of thing. Um, which basically meant that you got benefits if you had a certain amount of children. He and Livia never have any children, and they're married for a really long amount of time. And we know that they're both capable of having children with other partners. Um, it's it's a really unusual situation between the two of them. And they do have a successful pregnancy that goes to term. True. They lose the infant baby. quite yeah. early on. So yeah. there is that tragedy as well. Yeah, and I guess the idea is that, therefore because they have no child focus on of their own that's a mutual child, that Livia, of course, being a woman, <laughs> schemes for her own children to of succeed. Of course. <laughs> so all of these deaths of Augustus's legitimate heirs are the result, Claudius argues, of Livia's machinations. Mm. Her sole aim as a woman and a mother uh, <laughs> is that her firstborn child, Tiberius, uh, should succeed Augustus. My favourite. Week, week. <laughs> <laughs> Mm. So, I think this leads us very nicely into our third section for consideration Mm. in this episode. This is Tacitus and Suetonius' version of Livia. Well, (laughs) like, um, the whole story. Like, what is the whole story? We know that Mm. she comes out pretty badly in Tacitus' annals. True. But she doesn't come out so badly in our other source material. I think in Dio, I mean, there, there is a little bit of that in Dio because it's, it's in Dio we get some of these stories about, you know, um, Livia going to huge lengths to poison Augustus. Like, for example, poisoning the figs because she knows that Augustus likes to stroll amongst this particular fig tree and just have a snack. So on the off chance that he might reach up and grab a poisoned fig, she poisons all the figs. Um, and there's definitely this idea that, that Livia is the, like the real power in Augustus and Tiberius's life, that she has a huge partnership. So it, I agree. I think it definitely comes out of, um, of sources like Tacitus. But I think there's also elements of that in other sources as well yeah Mm. well i would say that tacitus is even more ambiguous than perhaps graves gives credit to true and so in the opening of tacitus's annals Mm. in book one uh he describes how uh, agrippa dies yep Um, an untimely fate to quote from the source material or the treachery of their stepmother livia yeah um who cuts off both lucius and gaius caesar and Agrippa is the last child of Julia, Augustus's daughter, and her husband, Agrippa, who had been Augustus's very close friend. Oh, so yeah, so yeah, 
Um, Agrippa Posthumus. Yes. Um, but I think in this case she's talking about Agrippa. Oh, her senior. husband. Oh, right, sorry, right, sorry. Yeah. My mistake. <laughs> no, no, no. All fine, all fine. Um, so, but even in this opening, Tacitus posits Livia's involvement as a possible. Yes. It's an all the treachery of their stepmother. Yeah. And that's exactly how um, that Tacitus likes to play things. He always has that sort of sneaky aside. He's not coming right out and accusing her of doing it. He's just suggesting it because he knows it's like a lawyer. It's always like a lawyer, I think, of in those courtroom dramas where they say something really controversial like, oh, were you? And the judge says, strike that from the record. He says, it's so stricken, but the jury's already heard the evidence and it's too late. They're prejudiced now. (laughs) I will push the point further. Yeah, okay, yeah. Allow me. Uh, So so Livia dies fairly early on in Tacitus' account. Yes, Um, Tacitus really starts with like a sort of backstory of Augustus and then goes into Tiberius. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tiberius is the main focal point. You'd be pleased to know. I am very pleased. Um, So she dies at extremely old age. Mm -hmm. Um, According to Dio Cassius, she's around about 86. Mm. So for somebody... Augustus around for his money. Wow, somebody who's politically ambitious and knocked off everybody seems to have survived pretty well. Suspicious. Suspicious. (laughs) Um, She's not eating the figs, is she? (laughs) (laughs) But... Um, he talks about her domestic virtue. Mm. Her virtue was of the old school. Her mm. affability went further than was approved by women of the elder world. Ooh. Yeah, so she's she's more open and uh, sort of welcoming than perhaps some of the old Republican matroni, which I think is a, an interesting half compliment. It is. <laughs> <laughs> an imperious mother, not a compliment. <laughs> An accommodating well, wife. Oh, compliment. Ooh. Compliment. See, I, see, I actually don't know if Imperious Mother is meant to be a bad thing because Roman mothers aren't meant to be all fuzzy wuzzy. <laughs> True that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I agree. Yeah. Sono yeah. d'accordo. Yeah. Um, and an excellent match for the subtleties of her husband. Yeah, because Augustus is kind of the master manipulator. I mean, being the first princeps slash emperor of Rome is no mean feat, you know, to, to, to live as long as he did and outmaneuver everybody else. You'd have to think that Livy is keeping a pace with him. Yes. Yeah. And I think to myself, well, you know, if she's keeping a pace with her husband, yeah. I think some of the accusations that are leveled at her mm. that come out of the I Claudius version, yes. that she's this sort of demonic... Yeah, uh, murderous presence in the imperial court. Yeah, that you're just not giving Augustus enough credit. No, that's the thing. I think it comes across as she's so dominating, and she and she talks even when, even when Augustus is dying. She says um, she remarks that she does this for Rome. Like it, it is almost like she is the ruler because it's not it's not just for her own personal gain. It's for the well being of Rome. And I think in a sense, this actually also comes out of the timing of the novel and and then the later TV series. Rome has often been used as this metaphor to speak about empire and the fate of empires when things get out of hand. And a sure sign when, you know, particularly after Graves, when Graves was writing his novel, of things getting out of hand is for a woman to be in power where a man should be. Yes. Yeah. And so, I mean, the novels are coming out in the 30s. Yes. And so yeah. you've got this really sort of blowback against first wave feminism. And then when I Claudius TV series emerges in the 70s, you've got this real blowback against second wave feminism. Yeah. Livia gets to embody all of the negative projections of yeah. what happens when a woman is at the locus of power. And it's always the case in, in, in both the novel and the TV, TV series, I think, that female power depends on men being weak. Like, it can't be that you have a strong man and a strong woman 
Heaven forbid. <laughs> it has to be one or the other. They're not ruling together. <laughs> one of them's got the upper hand. <laughs> and in this case, it's definitely Olivia. Claudius wouldn't have killed his own children, <laughs> so it must have been her. <laughs> and she's uh, smiling in the corner being like, eat another fig, darling. <laughs> yum, yum. <laughs> <laughs> so... Is this the whole story of Livia, Tacitus's version, Robert mm. Graves's version? Oh, God, no. Definitely not. <laughs> Stay tuned for when we revisit her at a later date. <laughs> so, yeah. um, to pick up this question, yeah. is this the whole story of Livia? Yeah. Uh, the answer is, I think we've both agreed, definitely no. No. Um, so she, we need to backtrack into her story a little bit, Yeah, I think, for this. Um, she is the daughter of Marcus Livius Drusus Claudianus. Now that's a familiar name, as in, as in, as in. (laughs) Sure it is. Yeah, as in the Claudian part. For those of you who've been following our early Republican episodes, we have been mentioning people from, you know, the ancient Claudian clan quite a bit, actually. Most particularly Appius Claudius, he's a real hard-ass, quite frankly. Yes. <laughs> so we've got this legacy of the patrician Claudia, yeah, this definitely. major, long, um, prestigious gens yeah. of Rome. All the way back to the founding, baby. All yeah. the way back. <laughs> and, and that's where Livia comes from. And, and her mother is a woman called Alphidia. Mm. Now, we know from the name that she must be the daughter of an Italian magistrate. Ooh. Not Roman, Italian. Interesting, interesting. So, I've written in brackets, nothing special here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, it may have been a love match, perhaps. Um, yeah, but we really her, know, though, do we? Yeah, mm. but importantly, because uh, her father's name is Claudianus, yes. we also know that he's adopted into the Claudii Gens. Yes, true. Yeah, yeah. And he is actually born Appius Claudius Pulcher. Ooh. Mm. Interesting. <laughs> I felt like you were going to answer that. I was like, wait a minute. Is that what I read in my notes? All right. Appius was adopted as an infant by Marcus Livius Drusus. Right. Yes. The Tribune of 91 BC. Gotcha. Okay. And it's through this mechanism that Livia carries the descent and prestige of both the Livia again yes. and the Claudia. Yeah. Pretty prestigious on both sides, in other words. Yeah. 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 Unfortunately for her, um, it seems like she has a... Well, not she, but her family keeps picking the wrong side in some of the conflicts that happened during the first century BC. Yeah, look, a bit unfortunate, really. So, Olivia's married to, first of all, to a guy called Tiberius Claudius Nero. Mm. Keeping it in the family. I was going to say, that just sounds way too close. (laughs) (laughs) Too close for comfort. (laughs) Now, Tiberius Nero, interesting figure. A bit luckless in his political choices. Yeah. Um, He's part of the Optimates political faction. Um... The traditional conservatives in the Senate. Mm. And he also goes on to support Mark Antony at the Battle of Philippi. He just can't catch a break. <laughs> Both of these are bad political decisions. The Optimates lose, Antony loses. Um, so didn't her father also back like the assassins of Caesar or something? Like, <laughs> Maybe. I haven't, yeah. looked, I haven't gone down that path. I thought it was bad enough that the husband was implicated. <laughs> I think her father actually had to commit suicide after picking oh, the wrong side. Yeah. Yeah, so she hasn't been... Uh, her male relatives are 
Perhaps not as astute politically as one might hope. <laughs> I was going to say. So Olivia is smarter than her male relatives. Indeed. Hello. <laughs> so her husband Tiberius Nero is eventually exiled from Rome for being on the wrong side of politics. Yeah. Fair enough. And Livia, as the dutiful wife, follows her husband into exile. And they go and live in Greece for a while. Yeah. They get to come back mm. to Rome mm-hmm. in 39 BC. Yeah. Super exciting. They bring you along their toddler. Tiberius. Tiberius. That's so cute. (laughs) He's only like three. Um, He was born in 42. Mm -hmm. And she falls pregnant in around about 38, 37. Yep. With her second child. With her second child. Mm. And it's while she's heavily pregnant, about six months. (laughs) Across a crowded room. (laughs) He sees her. Her rounded belly Mm. speaks to him. I'm talking about. Augustus, of course. <laughs> <laughs> she and uh, her husband, Tiberius yeah. Nero, go to a dinner party. Mm. She's like, you know what else I can fit in? <laughs> <laughs> she locks gazes with a young upstart uh, man, mm. uh, Octavian. Also married. Also, also married. married. Yeah. <laughs> also married. Yeah. They wander off for a while. Oh. And uh, when they come back, her ears are red. <laughs> Well, if that doesn't scream adultery, I don't know what does. <laughs> yeah. So apparently Octavian's wife at the time, Scribonia, demands a divorce. Um, she's like, well, I'm not putting up with that. I've heard she was a bit shrewish. <laughs> no great loss anyway. <laughs> yes, well. Yeah. Um, by all, all accounts, if you mm. believe Tacitus, yeah. Olivia is far more the shrew. Yeah. Uh, nevertheless, Octavian seems to be into that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, because <laughs> <He has a laughs> <type>. <laughs> they are married by like mid-January <laughs> it's very quick and uh, while she's still pregnant yeah I was gonna say she's still pregnant and in most resources I think Augustus divorces his existing wife like the day after she gives birth <laughs> or very very soon after it is a challenging time yeah. to be a pregnant lady in Rome <laughs> so, what a year yeah. <laughs> um so anyway I think this speaks to what is perhaps the passionate uh Love at first sight, lust at first sight yeah. that, that occurs between these two because nobody in their right mind um, seduces somebody else's wife when they're six months pregnant at a dinner party. It just it doesn't really occur to you, no, and like, I would think, as a rational human. We've talked before about how ancient Roman men are allowed to fool around, you know, with other people's... You're always fooling uh, around. With, with, other, with other women, but you don't do it with a married patrician lady. That just doesn't happen. <laughs> So it's, I'm glad for their, for their sakes that it worked out, but it's obviously a strong attraction. Yes. Yeah, to violate those sort of social codes. Yes, yeah. yes. And everybody, even at the time, everybody yeah. agrees. So They're in love, man. Yeah, so according, <laughs> according to Suetonius, Suetonius uh, appears, or at least claims, to have gotten his hands on some of the personal correspondence between Mark Antony and Octavian before they had a personal falling out. Ooh. And even Mark Antony is like, dude... I'm so happy for you, man. <laughs> High five. <laughs> not even that. Yeah. And I quote, um, yeah. when he had not yet wholly broken from him privately or publicly, mm-hmm. Antony writes to Octavian. And he's like, what has made such a change in you? Because I lie with a queen. <laughs> Are you jealous of this Cleopatra stuff? She is my wife. Am I just beginning this? Or was it nine years ago? And like a sly reference to like, well, I was there when Caesar first met yeah. her too, you know. <laughs> I was going to say. Yeah. What then of Flashback. you? Yeah. <laughs> Do you lie only with Drusilla? 
Good luck to you, if when you have read this letter you have not been with Tertullia, or Tarantilla, or Rufilia, or Servilia Tysensia, or all of them. Does it matter where or with whom you take your pleasure? <laughs> and I was like, wow. Okay, Anthony. <laughs> Anthony, I thought you were a player. Yeah, that's right. It's kind of your reputation, in case you don't realise. You become known as the lover. <laughs> um, but actually, he seems to think that Octavian is far more of the player. Well, we definitely get that that coming through. But I think the thing is, it's yeah. Even if that is the case, even after he takes up with Livia or whatever, because um, they are married for a really long time, there's definitely that sense from some of the comments that are made in the sources that there's a genuine you know, long-lasting, passionate bond between these two. I mean, to to stay married when you seemingly can't have a, a living child, again, it's really unusual. It you is. Know, like, in Rome, marriage is not about love. Marriage is about politics and alliances. And and continuing that next generation, if you can't do that, then move on. There are plenty of other women you could shack up with. Yeah, and this is part of the reason why I find that the I, Claudius version of Livia is just not doing her justice. Yeah. Um, these two embark upon a really specific moral reform program. Once the dust settles on the Civil War business... Sure, and Octavian is the... Sorry, Octavian slash Augustus is the last man left standing after Antony shuffles off. <laughs> <laughs> he shuffles off this mortal coil. Onto his sword. Ouch! <laughs> Ouch! <laughs> oh, it hurts. Um, after that moment, yeah. they embark upon this massive cultural reform program mm. seeking if you like to make Rome great again yes and where have I heard that before <laughs> there's this focus on nostalgia and a revival of and I use flesh rabbits virtues mm. that were believed to be quintessential to the Roman Republic yes so, so for women that means behaving yourself <laughs> yeah so and Livia plays this role to the hilt yeah um, she encourages other matronae to follow her virtuous example mm. so this includes practicing austerity yep weaving cloth yep that um, she's going to make into clothes for Augustus yeah so she produces the fabric that and makes the clothes that he wears yeah in so public. people can say why Augustus I love your toga today why thank you my wife made it no get out of town yes yeah so this is like the 1950s equivalent of like who washes your shirts my wife yes. Maya, she starts as a nice white stiff collar <laughs> have you seen how white it is yeah <laughs> And she also actively turns a blind eye to Octavian's wandering gaze. Totally, yeah. And she knows about it. It's pretty clear. She's yeah. astute enough to know. Yeah. Um, when you're seduced, well, like heavily pregnant in, at, a, at a party, you, <laughs> chances you know. are he's not going to be faithful to you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you think to yourself, wow. Um, but she sees it as her duty to focus on her own chaste example mm. to other women. And I've actually heard that I've heard some people talk about the fact that perhaps one of the reasons why these two don't get divorced is that Augustus uses Livia to be his, you know, it, things have changed drastically now that you've got one guy ostensibly, I mean, I'll, you know, I'll be behind the scenes in charge of things. If you're setting up an imperial family, like where you want to actually have a dynasty established here, then that means that all of a sudden women have a much more important role than they previously have had. And Livia has to be his partner in that. And so he has to build her up. And if we forget about the written sources for a moment and look at, you know, the statuary and the coinage and all that kind of stuff, it tells us a different story. And it tells about how Olivia could be used as an icon of sorts. Yeah. Yeah, and this is also in a more positive way, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> and it's definitely supplemented by the focus on the legal changes in Livia's and 
to a lesser extent, Octavia's status yes. uh, in yeah. this period of time where they're given a whole bunch of privileges yeah. that go well beyond anything that women Completely. under Roman law have had before. For sure, yeah. And, and so Livy even racks up something that she doesn't really deserve. <laughs> <laughs> and we get to this point where the only sticking point really for Livia's union with Augustus is this inability ultimately to bear legitimate children. And this is where the scandal comes from, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. And, and this is where you have an in to that sort of really critical tradition that because she can't have her own children yeah. with, with Augustus, that she goes about pedantically <laughs> and systematically destroying every child that has any blood connection Which, to him. admittedly, I guess at first glance you think to yourself, well, yes, obviously Augustus had a really unlucky run with heirs. They just kept dying. <laughs> um, this is true. <laughs> but the other thing to remember is that Augustus and Livia both lived to be really old by ancient world standards. So it kind of also stands to reason on the flip side that you are going to outlive a lot of your family, even younger family, if you live to be, you know, in your 80s. That's, that's unheard of. That's crazy. In fact, I actually remember someone telling me the other day that as far as we can tell according to like written records, Augustus and Livia must be one of the oldest couples on record. Yeah, because, you know, as in they both live to be so old. Um, from really? this from this period, yeah, it's just it just doesn't happen that we have records of this kind of thing at this period. Mm, fascinating. I'm sure other people did, but you know, it's <laughs> it's, it's all about the documentation. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Do we have the evidence? Exactly, exactly. Yes. Um, turns out no. <laughs> all right. So this leads us to our final section for this episode. Mm. Um, the question of where does Livia fit into the broader narrative of Rome? Mm. And I'm interested in your perspective. Okay. What's okay. her legacy? Um, what do you take away from the details? Okay, wait for it. I'm going to hit you with something. <laughs> Not your fist. No. <laughs> no, that was yesterday. Okay, so for me, Livia is actually... She invokes actually some... Well, I mean, what are meant to be older tropes in terms of... We've talked about this before when we looked at some of the kings of Rome. The idea of a woman behind the scenes... Um, managing things so that certain men will succeed to power and certain men will not. We looked at that with Servius Tullius and how I, I find the story of Tiberius coming to power after Augustus is dead very similar to that. And then I feel like the story of how Agrippina stage manages Nero's accession, according to our written sources, is very similar again. So I almost think like Livia is a device, whether it's she's being used by Augustus, whether it's she's being used by Tiberius to promote this sort of, you know, whatever image they want to, they want to promote, whether it's Republican virtues or, you know, the, the imperial dynasty. But in the written sources, she is the manipulating female who's suddenly been allowed to have a voice, or, you know, a, a role in the political, um, in the political realm, which she shouldn't have because of this new system that's been set up that's just my that's just my thing okay so yeah. you're suggesting that there's a real conflict between what she actually was granted historically yeah. and the way that literary sources want to navigate the role of women well this is it i almost feel like yeah i mean i'm sorry <laughs> i feel like i'm getting a little bit modern but i i feel like she, the real livia is is out of reach because whatever we have it's it's a production by men whether it's Robert Graves, whether it's Augustus and Tiberius on the coins and the statues, or whether it's Tacitus and Suetonius and Dio in the written sources, they're all using her. And I, it, it's so hard to get a real glimpse of who she really was, apart from the fact that I feel like she must have been pretty wily to, you know, 
keep up with all these men around her. Like she Augusta. survives. And yeah. I think I think this is a key yeah. factor. Yeah. Is that she isn't killed off. Nope. She isn't sent into exile. Nope. And to me, She's those, not disgraced. Yeah, yeah, those two things are super important. Yeah. Because if Augustus saw Livia as a political rival yes. rather than a political ally. Yeah. He, he would have got rid of her in a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think for a minute that he's got the sort of emotional wallowing no. to be like, oh, but I love her. Yeah. To have not gone through with the exile that, that that her actions, if they had been of such a treacherous yeah. nature, would have demanded. This is a guy who had the name of, like, Butcher Boy when he was in his teens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like, I, yeah. Just, I just don't believe it. No. Um, that he would have this particular weakness in yeah. regards to Livia. Yeah. It's clear that they are working together. Mm. It's clear that they adore each other yep. but I think if he thought she was trying to undermine him mm. he would also eliminate her right he would yeah. hate himself for a moment but he would do it yeah so what do you think her legacy is then in your in your opinion I think it's there are a couple of features yeah. I think it's dangerous the way that she's represented in the literary sources because mm. she falls into that political trope of political invective against the man Powerful in power man. yeah so it's a pretty clear trope that it happens a lot in Roman literature, yep. um, particularly in the historiographical sources, where diminishing a man's public career by attributing him to having some sort of weakness associated with women yep. is an insinuation that he is actually controlled by them. Well, that's it. it all comes down to control, isn't it? I mean, like with yep. Claudius himself, you know, in the actual sources about the emperor, as we've discussed... He's, he's weak on two counts because he, he is controlled by freedmen and women, two groups who should never have any political power. Exactly. Yeah. And women historically up until this moment in Roman history mm. have, in the literary sources, really been focused on the private nature of their role. Yes. And when they tend to come into the public record, they're usually openly criticised for having done so. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's not like women have never been... It's not like men have never been attacked... Um, via their female relatives so like you know women you know having sex with the wrong person or disgracing themselves or running around mad or whatever like that's that's not new to this period but I think the fact that Olivia and Augustus are just on another scale like now again it it ramps everything up when you've got an imperial family Um, and it it changes the, the the nature of it it makes it it makes it something different yeah, and yeah. they're always going to have a slight sense of the mystical about them as well mm. because they achieve the thing that is going to be the legacy of Rome, which is this transition point from Republic to Empire. Yeah. Augustus's Principate is this pivotal moment of a shift in the way Rome fundamentally operates. Absolutely. And, it's, and it is, I mean, in a sense, there is also that reality that, sure, women actually do have more access to power now. Like, that's a, that is true. And Livia certainly is one of those people... I mean. We've talked about Augustus, you know, a number of times in terms of how he, you know, his achievements are off the scale and he's never really equaled um, in terms of how the Romans, you know, tend to look, you know, look at emperors and that sort of thing. And his legacy is, is amazing in that sense. And Livia, I feel like, is kind of his female counterpart in that respect as well, because the honours that she gets, I mean, they're what every other woman after her will aspire to, you know, being, you know, becoming the Augusta, you know, and becoming, you know, a priestess of, of Augustus's cult, you know, like the, the prestige that she accumulates, the fact that they try and call her mother of mother of the, her country, the, you know, Diovan has this story about them suggesting that um, after Augustus is dead, that Tiberius be named after Livia, like all these sorts of stories, which you know, is crazy for a woman, crazy <laughs> to have that kind of prominence. 
Yeah, and I think in that sense, what she marks out, what she stakes out for herself is a position in the evolution of the role of women. Yes. Uh, and it continues to develop as the Prince of it emerges into the Empire. True, yes, absolutely. Um, but she becomes the sort of the lightning rod that every other woman in the public sphere from this point onwards measures herself by. Exactly. I mean, I think obviously there are women who come later once the you know, the Empire is much more established and this whole system is much more established who, you know, could be said obviously to wield similar influence and that sort of thing. But for Livia at that point in time to occupy that kind of role, that's the... That's the thing. That's it's the kicker. Yeah, exactly. It's one small step for woman. <laughs> one great leap for womankind. Indeed. I suppose in a sense, although we might not like the evil, <laughs> demonic sort of side to Graves's Livia in I, Claudius, the novel and um, the TV series, at least it does acknowledge that Livia has got that political nous. You know, she's not stupid. She is an imperious, terrifying presence. <laughs> um, and, and she certainly can run rings around anybody else on that, in that family, which I feel like there is a little bit of that <laughs> that I get the sense of in the ancient sources from Livia. Like, she must have been able to hold her own against anyone else. There's some fear. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, on that note, I think we're pretty much... I think we can wrap this up. Nice to talk to you again. A pleasure as always. <laughs> oh man, you want to be able to try. <laughs>